0: The Jewish Views on Helping Syrian Refugees Settle into the UK, Find out what World Jewish Relief is doing about it. Bad Jews, the West End hit is back in town, actor Ilan Goodman tells us more. And the new awards ceremony set to acknowledge the work achieved by staff from Jewish schools.
1: But first, with a roundup of the Jewish News this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The government has condemned what were called acts of violent intimidation by anti-Israel protesters at a leading London university. It happened during a talk by a former head of Israel's Shin Bet Secret Service. The protesters threw chairs and set off fire alarms, claiming that Ami Ayalon was a racist Zionist. The president of the college's Israel Society, Esther Enfield, was allegedly hit. The Union of Jewish Students said there can be no justification for these events. We'll have more on this later in the programme. Orthodox Jewish community leaders have criticised a decision by the Department for Education to close down an independent Haredi school in Stamford Hill. The Talmud Torah Tashbar School, which has 200 pupils, has operated illegally for 40 years and its curriculum is taught entirely in Hebrew. Ofsted inspectors said it encouraged cultural and ethnic insularity. It comes as the Interlink Foundation, which represents the Orthodox community, said it felt deeply uncomfortable about David Cameron's statement that all children should learn English to counter extremism. There have been two more terrorist stabbing incidents in Jewish settlements in the West Bank. A mother of six was killed in front of three of her children. Her attacker reportedly fled to the Palestinian village of Kirbet Karima. And a pregnant woman was wounded near the settlement of Gush Etzion. Her attacker was shot. Both are in hospital. The former Israeli President Shimon Peres has been discharged from hospital after a mild heart attack. Mr. Perez, who's 92, thanked well-wishers after checking out of Tel Hashomer Hospital near Tel Aviv. He said he was happy to return to work. And finally, tributes have been pouring in for the publisher and philanthropist Lord Weidenfeld, who's died at the age of 96. Lord Weidenfeld fled Austria in 1938, following its annexation by the Nazis, and settled in London. He worked at the BBC during the war and later formed the famous publishing company Weidenfeld & Nicholson with the politician Nigel Nicholson. Most recently, he started a project to bring Christian families out of Syria and Iraq and resettle them. That's the news now, The Sport, with Andrew Sherwood.
2: Thanks, Vivian. Dudy seller will face Russian Andrei Kuznetsov in the third round of the Australian Open after he recorded one of the best wins of his career in Melbourne on Thursday morning. The Israeli beat Fernando Verdasco, who had earlier knocked out Rafael Nodal, three sets to one, though his performance has been a rare highlight. Four other Israelis have already been knocked out, while three other Jewish players have also fallen by the wayside. Back home, the weather decimated last weekend's football fixture list, with only 5 of 16 games being played. One Peter Morrison cup tie which did go ahead saw North London Raiders A beat Manchester Maccabi firsts. While in league action, FC Team B put 10 goals past North London Raiders B and Scrabble made it 13 wins from 13 in Division 2 with a 3-0 win over Boca Juniors. And finally, the President of the European Fencing Confederation has demanded urgent action be taken after the Saudi Arabian team refused to compete against their Israeli counterparts at the World Cup competition in Switzerland. Israeli Dr Vladimir Shlachla said, I fought this in the past and will continue to fight this unsporting phenomenon.
0: Thank you, Andrew. Well, welcome to this week's edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off this episode, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me is Features Editor Fran Warfish and Editor Richard Ferrer. Welcome to you both. Richard, massive front page this week. I don't mean in terms of size. I mean in terms of story. What is on the front page?
3: Yeah, we've gone with the headline Young, Dumb and Dangerous Government Condemns Violent Anti-Israel protest at Top London University Once again, the grim realities of uh, life on campus for Jewish students was uh, thrown into sharp focus with scenes at King's College on Tuesday night when a violent mob, there's no other way of describing them ran riot during a talk by one of the former heads of Israel's secret service The smashed window, thrown chairs, screams 150 people feeling intimidated in a room encircled by protesters waving flags. The event had to be finished early. Irony of ironies, of course, the the event was um, with an interview with the former head of Shin Bet, Ami Ayalon, one of Israel's, should we say, most outspoken constructive critics since leaving the Secret Service. So scenes of thuggery. And certainly scenes that uh, we've seen before, but perhaps not in in, in such a hostile uh, and menacing fashion than than the ones that were played out on Tuesday. And quite graphic detail
0: as well. I believe that some footage was captured on mobile phones as well, uh, not least by the uh, president of the Israel Society for Kings College London, that's Esther Enfield. We'll hear from her in just a moment. But it's quite shocking to think that in an age of so-called democracy that we still have to tolerate such nonsense really, isn't it?
4: Um, I find it really sad actually that you know universities are a place really where students go to expand their minds to learn about things to become more worldly and I think this just shows that well actually it's tantamount to censorship and that should be something that students should actually be against so to see these scenes happening right here in London it's absolutely awful this you know guest speaker came along he should be able to have he should have the right to say what he wants to say freely and without feeling threatened or his audience indeed
0: well naturally as I'm sure you can imagine lots of various members of the community have condemned the attack and have expressed their concerns And not least, Russell Lenger, who's the campaign's director for the Union of Jewish Students, he expressed his concerns for the future following Tuesday evening's events. In
5: my role now, I tend to see more of these types of situations, though I think this is one of the worst situations I've seen in the year and a half I've been working at UJS. And I think essentially it's okay except for when these situations happen. I'm hoping what will happen after this won't be that students are scared to run these sort of events again in the future. That's definitely not the situation we want. We want these sort of events that open up dialogue, have this sort of nuanced discussion on campus to take place. And we don't want the fear and intimidation that the protesters tried to cause last night to stop these events from happening again in the future.
0: So as you hear, not far dissimilar from what you've said, Fran, where it obviously should be a place where people can have these dialogues, speak freely and actually hold decent and civilised debates. And it just feels... As if it's such a massive step backwards for society, doesn't it, that this still happens and this still carries on.
3: King's College, obviously, is one of the most prominent academic institutions in in Britain, let alone in, in London. It drags their name through the mud. It pollutes rational debate and rational thought. None of these young thugs, I imagine, have even set foot in Israel and seen the actual realities So where they're getting their information from is clearly from a a filter that that makes them come to these conclusions that that brings out the the violence and the intimidation that they want to display in front of other students. And the, the ramifications of this story, I mean, it blew up within hours. You had a government minister reacting to it. You had... Police spokesman saying that officers are going to be investigating it following the fact that they actually attended the campus after the event. You had the Israeli embassy chipping in, all the leaders of the community, including the Board of Deputies, calling it shocking and violent. Often these campus incidents remain within the student community. This one has has, has, has reverberated well beyond that.
0: Well, Esther Enfield, who I mentioned before, who's the president of the Israel Society for King's College London, has clearly been shaken by the incident.
6: I wish I could say that I haven't been put off. As president of the society, I will be putting on events. We've got book speakers, and we'll have cultural events, and we'll have more political events. But that's not to say I'm absolutely terrified. I'm scared, for not only for my safety, but for the safety of the people who are going to attend, for the safety of the speaker, because the speaker last night was in danger. If they managed to get into the room, like anything could have happened. and. We're going to have to work very closely with the student union to see how this is not going to happen. Why wouldn't this happen again? How How is this going to be prevented? And I will carry on putting events, just because, not only because I've put myself up for that position of putting on events, but... Because I think it's also defiance. I think it's to saying, well like like you can hurt us and you can be intimidating and you can be aggressive, but we're actually not gonna stop doing what I actually want to do and I should be able to have a safe space on campus to express the views and they're not even necessarily my views and they're not even necessarily the views like our speaker last night wasn't necessarily the views of the of the Israel society, but it was the platform there just to provide a dialogue and to provide a space where that view could be heard.
0: I think it's worth reading at this stage the statement that King's College did release following the instance. Uh, They have said in an official statement, universities create environments in which debate from all sides on issues of political, scientific, morale, ethical and religious significance is possible. And King's is no exception. The safety of our students, staff and the general public is paramount to us. And we are committed to acting as a responsible organisation. And the statement does go on and their full statement can be read on the kcl.ac.uk website, if you so wish to. I think that this is obviously just a shocking reminder, as we say, of life on campus for some students, especially Jewish students, what they have to go through, what they have to tolerate sometimes on a daily basis. And with any luck, hopefully, if enough noise is made about it and enough awareness is raised, something will be done. There is obviously other news in the paper this week. And the next item, women saying the Kaddish. Fran, I believe that the chief rabbi has been putting his two pennies worth in about that.
4: Well, yes, um, I think it's, it's an ongoing debate. It's nothing new, really. But what chief rabbi Fran Mervis has actually done this week is he has very openly encouraged women who do wish to recite Kaddish when a loved one has passed away to go ahead and do so and that to basically clarify that women can say the kaddish there isn't anything wrong with saying it and they should feel comfortable saying it if they wanted to do so i think the preconception prior to this is that only men or male mourners should say the kaddish but obviously that then leaves female mourners feeling perhaps a little bit separated from the process of mourning and If they do want to go ahead and say this particular prayer during this time, then they obviously should be allowed to do so.
0: The problem is, though, that there are obviously those who are out there who follow a more traditional religious background who probably would turn around and say that as much as they understand why women would want to say Kaddish when they are in the process of mourning, There is, of course, tradition that has stated that it is actually only men traditionally who say it. And I know that there's this age old battle going on, isn't there, of tradition versus following the heart and what's right and what's wrong as far as halakhic law states. And it's just something that I think is never going to change. And yet what's interesting is that often the progressive movements are almost on the brink of lambasted for meddling changing and altering to suit the ever-changing society in which we live in, those particular rules and regulations. And yet now, hopefully, it does seem as if though the more religious, if obviously if Rabbi Mervis is potentially backing this, that hopefully that things will these become a bit easier and probably some of the darkest times that people are going to have to go through in their lives.
3: I was under the misconception that the Kaddish was only a male prayer. I wasn't aware that it was actually uh, either gender that could recite it. On the orthodox shivers I've been to, it's, it's profoundly personal and an evocative prayer. And as someone who's not religious, you can sense the, the, the mourning conveyed in, in the words, even, even if you don't speak Hebrew. So I can see that the outlet that that gives the mourner to express how they feel to the congregation, to the minion, and to perhaps you know help them get to terms with what, what's happened and the person they've lost. So it was a surprise to me that a woman has always had the opportunity to, and to hear the chief rabbi encourage, this is obviously a very, very good thing.
4: Yeah, I think uh, the point to make really is obviously that the the actual basis of this remains the same, which is that it is actually obligatory for men to say it. For women, it does remain optional. I think really having the chiefs backing to this is encouraging women saying, you know, you want to say it, you can go ahead and say it. And there will be a guidebook for women to um, know all the sort of the ins and outs of this.
0: Absolutely. Well, we're going to hear more about this next item a little later on in the programme. But let's have a quick look now at the organisation pages. That's, of course, the Partnership for Jewish Schools. Richard, there's an awards ceremony coming out from them, isn't there?
3: It's a very big day, not only for uh, Pages, but also for the Jewish news. Next Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, we're going to be hosting the inaugural Jewish Schools Awards. We're going to be celebrating the uh, academic excellence of our students the brilliance of our teachers, the magnificent campuses that Jewish schools both primary and secondary now offer. And it's gonna be quite clear, I think, on the night why so many Jewish parents are now choosing a Jewish school to send their their children to. We have uh, 16 amazing candidates across eight different categories. We're gonna be celebrating them all on the night at JW3. And it promises to be the biggest night of the year for us, for the Partnership for Jewish School, and for the Emmys Foundation, who is also in partnership with us on the event.
0: And regrettably, time is slightly up against us. So, Fran, can you just give us a really quick liner on The Pianist of Wilston Lane?
4: This is a fascinating one woman play. Mona Golebeck, who is a concert pianist and performer, is starring in a play that she's written based on her book, The Children of Wilsdon Lane, about her mother's life. And she actually plays her own mother on stage. And the story is basically about her mother coming over as a child on the Kinder Transport following her dream to become a concert pianist and when she arrived at this orphanage in Wilsdon Lane, she found a piano of all things and managed to basically get through the war years and inspire the other children at the orphanage by playing the piano. It's a really beautiful story and uh, it's on at St James's Theatre until the 27th of February.
0: And it also features in this week's paper, obviously. So, Richard Ferrer, Fran Warfish, thank you very much indeed. Now, you may obviously have seen throughout the news of last year, the crisis in Syria and facing the refugees trying to flee from persecution is really reaching a major crisis point. Organisations such as World Jewish Relief have been doing their part to try and help the situation wherever possible. But it's only until now that they've started to look to helping those refugees actually within this country. To tell us more, I've been speaking to Richard Verber, the campaign's manager for World Jewish Relief, and I started by asking him to remind us about some of the work they've done to date for Syrian refugees.
7: So anybody who's been following the news over the last couple of years will be, I'm sure like me, deeply distressed by the scenes that we've seen. Hundreds of thousands of people have been killed in Syria. Millions of people within the country are in need of urgent humanitarian support. And that has led to millions of people fleeing the country trying to find a better life. A couple of million have found a home in Turkey, another million in Lebanon and Jordan. And 2015's news was really dominated by the refugee crisis into Europe. Hundreds of thousands of refugees and migrants fleeing war. Torture, persecution, trying to set up better lives for themselves elsewhere. Back in September 2015, World Jewish Relief launched its refugee crisis appeal, reaching out to the British Jewish community, as we do every now and again for international disasters, to say although our core work, as ever, remains supporting vulnerable Jewish communities in the former Soviet Union, as the British Jewish community's response to international disasters. We need your support. And the response was overwhelming. To date, we've raised over £820,000 to support refugees in Turkey and in Greece. In Turkey, we've been working in refugee camps, supporting children's education, providing back-to-school kits so that although refugees are starting a new school year outside of their hometown, they're not going to miss out. Thanks to the Jewish community, they've got school bags, school books, pens, pencils, in order to continue their studies.
0: So something that most Jewish pupils in this country would take completely for granted as a result of the generosity of the community. Now others from less fortunate communities will be able to benefit as well. Have you received much in the way, I know that's not the reason why you're doing this, but have you received much in the way of thanks or recognition from the communities that you've helped from Syria? World well, Jewish Relief always works
7: with local partners in the countries where we're working that we've vetted, that we've verified to ensure that every single pound that's donated by the British Jewish community goes where it's supposed to go. We therefore always make sure that they understand that it's the British Jewish community that's helping make a difference. You might think that given the context that we're working in now, Syrian refugees, some of whom will have no doubt grown up feeling less favorable towards Jews towards Israel there could be some tensions but there hasn't been there's actually been overwhelming supports a question of surprise certainly as to why Jews feel this way but a overwhelming appreciation and gratitude as well as providing the school books we've spoken about we are also providing emergency food water shelter medical supplies things that here in the UK thank God we're very lucky to enjoy Whereas people fleeing with nothing but perhaps a bag and the clothes on their back have almost nothing at all. So it really is quite literally saving
0: lives. Now, while Jewish Relief was obviously formed in its early days to help those who wish to flee, understandably flee, Nazi persecution, does it feel in some really horrible way as if history, in a sort of slight way, could be repeating itself? Because There are some horrible parallels, to say the least. So I think I'd be nervous about making a direct comparison
7: between the Nazi genocide and what's going on today. Nevertheless, British Jewish people don't have to go too far back in their histories, either, as you've said, to the Second World War or perhaps a little bit further than that or from a different part of the world to find refugees in our own family histories. We have that, unfortunately, as a people since almost the word go. Jewish people have lived well and then have been forced from the land they were living in so there certainly is a parallel there and i think that's why we've seen an overwhelming majority of support for the work that we're doing and why the british community has been quite so generous in donating time and and money and that's because they see a parallel there as you rightly say they see that this could have been us or that we have now established ourselves and it's our turn to give something back that people are fleeing conflict and war and terror and persecution and that we now have the ability to make a little bit of a difference to improve their lives and so that's why I think the community
0: has supported us in the way it has. The Syrians have obviously now managed to, well not all of them but a lot thankfully, have managed to flee the persecution they face in their homeland. Some of them have arrived here and World Jewish Relief has launched a new slightly unique campaign to try and help those In this country what's unique about it
7: yes you're right it it is unique and for a couple of reasons and firstly it's worth me saying that we don't actually work in the UK so it's quite unusual unusual for us we don't work in the UK we don't work in Israel there are plenty of great charities that do and so we choose not to however we've seen an international crisis spill over into our borders the refugee migrant crisis is clearly now a domestic issue one level, there's government debate as to how many Syrian refugees we should bring in. The government's decided 20,000 by 2020 is a fair number. But we also know, as World Jewish Relief, that we are experts in helping people get into work. This is important because although the government is supporting these refugees coming over with many things, with housing, with access to education for their children, with health care, the missing part of the puzzle... As we know, as our grandparents and parents know, the best way to integrate into any society is to learn the language and to get a job. And this part of the government provision is actually missing. So we said to the government, we know because in the former Soviet Union, across Moldova, across Belarus, across Ukraine, we get Jews who have lived difficult lives back into work. We help them break the cycle of poverty forever. If you're interested, British government, we will help you Translate their work and expertise that we've got to supporting Syrian refugees here to get jobs themselves. We've actually been delighted with the support we've been given from both central governments and local governments to translate the project that we know works in the former Soviet Union to help Syrian refugees here.
0: Well, the government obviously does support what you do because I believe I'm right in thinking that this campaign, this latest campaign, was actually launched at 10 Downing Street, am I right? Yes, you're absolutely right. So our chairman, James Libsom,
7: joined the JLC delegation to Downing Street, where this campaign was launched and David Cameron gave it his full backing. Richard Harrington, the minister for Syrian refugees, has also given it his full support. And so we're now working with them to help them understand what exactly we do so well in the former Soviet Union and how we might lead on a project here. The challenge that Syrian refugees face is that job centres that they will go to are not equipped to deal with their quite harrowing backgrounds. There'll be language difficulties as well. So we'll be providing specialist individual support for each refugee because, of course, each person's got a different background. Many are skilled. We've met architects and pharmacists, and that should be, we hope, more straightforward to help them find a job But we also know that some Syrian refugees who have fled particularly difficult backgrounds perhaps be less skilled. And there we're going to be providing work experience, work placements, and we're looking to the private sector to help us find some
0: of those opportunities. Time is of the essence, so maybe you could answer this next question in one line. There might be some people out there listening, thinking, why should I care? What would you say to them? I would say that as an international citizen,
7: Somebody who either will know that in their family, they don't have to go too far back to find refugee status, that we living as a fairly prosperous, fairly secure, albeit minority community here in the UK, now have the opportunity to help people who have been fleeing the most untold war, persecution, horror stories. And so this is possibly an opportunity to help people who have been particularly disadvantaged
0: with the knowledge that we'll be making a real difference. And just lastly, if someone wants more information and wants to maybe help and get involved, where do they go? So the best way is to visit our
7: website, worldjewishrelief.org. You can also contact our office, 0208 and we'll be putting together a range of volunteer opportunities for the Jewish community to get involved.
0: Richard Verber, the campaign's manager for World Jewish Relief, talking to me there about their latest initiative to help Syrian refugees settle into their new life here in the UK. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by actor and photographer Tony Honigberg and founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Karbritz. They'll be discussing Jewish schools and their place in society. Plus community reporter Diana Toman will be speaking to Rabbi David Mayer from Partnerships for Jewish Schools, about a new award ceremony taking place within the next week, acknowledging the work of staff at Jewish schools. Now Bad Jews is back in town. The West End Show recently finished a highly successful stint, and due to popular demand, it is about to start another. This time at Theatre Royal Haymarket. The cast includes many talented actors and Ilan Goodman is one of them. And if the name sounds familiar, it's because he so happens to be the son of actor Henry Goodman. Anyway, he's been speaking to our entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton about reprising his role. Kate started by asking him whether or not it was always his intention to go into acting, especially as it was already in his blood.
5: It's always a difficult question, isn't it? Nature or nurture? Because it was it was around all the time when I was growing up. My dad was doing plays. My mother is also, she has a background as a dancer and a choreographer. She has a dance company, which she had in, in South Africa. So, so I guess performing and the arts was always in the house. So who knows? Genes or environment? No idea.
8: Were you encouraged to act?
5: Yes. I mean, I, I certainly got heavily involved at school and was... I mean, my my dad has certainly warned me off the industry or or attempted to when I was when I was a kid to, to kind of give me a realistic perception of trying to earn a living in this business. But it's very tricky when you're, you know, when you're an invincible youth, you don't want to listen to anyone and you always think you're going to be fine. So I didn't. I ignored him and I carried on regardless.
8: Absolutely. Where were you at school? Did you go to an acting school?
5: I trained at RADA, but I only went to RADA after university and regular school. And where Wimbledon. where
8: was your regular school?
5: My regular school was in Wimbledon.
8: And then you went on to... Did you go to Oxford, I seem to remember, reading somewhere? I did, somewhere.
5: yes. I did, yes. And I did a lot of acting there as well. I didn't study anything. I didn't even study English. I studied psychology and philosophy, actually. But I was heavily involved in the theatre scene there. even did some directing and I actually had a really great time. It was It was one of those periods of my life where I was so busy and so exhausted but very happy and we just had to do everything ourselves you know we would just sort of decide to put on a show and we'd get a space one you know one of the one of the spaces available and you'd have to sort the costumes out the props you know there was there was no sort of support from qualified stage management or anything you just had to kind of get on and try and make it yourself so you learn quite a lot by just being thrown in the deep end like that
8: and what sort of plays or things did you enjoy most
5: Oh, full range. I mean, oh, gosh, I remember doing a production of Carol Churchill's Cloud Nine, also a couple of Shakespeare's, which we toured Japan with. So we did The Taming of the Shrew, did Julius Caesar. I mean, it's such such a range of things. And that was all at a,
8: uni? That was all with your All pals. at uni. I
5: did something like 15 plays at uni. I mean, I was busy.
8: <laughs> gosh, and you had to fit a degree around that too.
5: Yeah, and That's I had to sort of impressive. write essays and go to lectures around that. I mean, I, my tutor did, I do remember they got cross with me because I, I was spending too much time in rehearsals, but yeah, I managed it just about.:
8: So you finished your degree and then you decided you wanted to go to Rada. This was presumably because you wanted to make acting your career.
5: Exactly, yeah, and it just it just seemed the natural progression to go to drama school. It was quite a tricky transition for me because obviously all my friends were, well, most of them were, were leaving university and, and embarking on some sort of career. And there I committed to another three years of of university or training. It was hard because it was like being at school again. You know, um, university, everything's kind of optional. And there's a bit of you get treated a little bit more like an adult. So the lectures, you don't have to turn up, for example. But but at drama school, it's it's nine to five classes, you know.
8: Well, let's, let's look at Bad Jews. I mean, when I first heard a while ago the, the title, it does make you cringe a little when you hear the word bad and Jews, and in fact, anything in the title with Jews. Yeah, so tell us it, a bit it about a it.
5: Well, the title is certainly edgy, and I have to say I do rather enjoy it because when you, when you do encounter the play, I think it's justified. The, the reason that they're f- – first of all, it, it's a play by a Jew about Jews discussing Jewish identity. In a sense, so it's Jews calling Jews bad rather than anything else, and they're certainly not stereotyped in any way. And they, what they represent, I mean, the theme of this play, it, it, which 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 emerges through the battle that these two warring cousins have. So my character Liam is a very sort of rational, secular, liberal academic who happens to come from a Jewish background. His cousin Daphne takes the heritage and the culture and the religious. Sort of heritage much more seriously and, and feels that Liam has kind of betrayed his, his roots by, by abandoning it and, and showing and sort of pouring scorn on it in the way he does. So, so that's the kind of central battle of it. So the, the, the phrase bad Jews comes from the idea of, you know, ha, you, you might sort of, a Jew might have some bacon for breakfast and go, oh, I'm a bad Jew. So it's an internal debate really with, within the community rather than some sort of gross stereotype from outside.
8: You've been and come back. You've gone, it was on, and then it's come back again. How come?
5: Well, it's, it, it's quite an extraordinary phenomenon, Bad Jews. We started it in 2014 in the summer in a studio theatre in Bath, the Ustinov studio, and it was the first time it was the British premiere. And, and this, this studio, which is connected to the Theatre Royal, has a kind of reputation for finding exciting pieces of new work, often from America and doing them here and then transferring them. So, so we did that for a month. We got great reviews. The audiences there really enjoyed it. It sold incredibly well. Then at the beginning of 2015, we transferred it to the St. James Theatre in Victoria. It went incredibly well there, it sold out. We even added two extra matinees, which also sold out, and then had another transfer to the arts theatre in the West End. So it just kept rolling and rolling and rolling. And then, And then we finished that. A different cast then went on tour Sort of November, October, November last year. Were you with them as well? No, I, no, that there was a completely different cast. I think by that point, last year, the the four of us who who started with it initially, we'd done it for six months, so we'd really had enough in that year. And then there, there was always a, another tour booked for this year, and then the run at the Haymarket has now come up. So I, I felt like I'd had sufficient break from it to to be able to come back to it and, and feel fresh. Plus, I do think it's a it's a really wonderful play, and it's it's rare that you get to be in something that has such an impact that that really makes the audiences gasp and laugh and and even cry, which bad news does sometimes it's an incredibly well written play, very well constructed, and a wonderful part so so that's why I've come back for more.
8: <laughs> Have you had people coming up to you and talking to you about the themes and what they like and don't like?
5: Absolutely. I mean, w- when we were at the St. James Theatre actually in, in Victoria, the audience was often because they have a lovely foyer bar there. So we did get to talk to a lot of audience members when we were. We, we would just come out for a drink. So, you know, I, I, I got, well, a, a lot of people love it and, and a lot of non-Jews really love it too, <laughs> because I, I think the the theme is very relatable one of struggling with one's heritage, cultural, religious, ethnic, whatever it may be, and then finding yourself in a very modern, secular age and, and reconciling those two things.
8: Is there an actual storyline? And I hear what you say about themes and, and identity. Oh, yes, and I, of course.
5: I haven't given you the, the sort of bones of the storyline. It all takes place in a, an apartment in Manhattan. OK, so they're, they're all American. And my cousin Daphne is there and... I'm on my way so it starts with Daphne and my brother and the situation is the the grandfather has just passed away he was kind of the patriarch so he's a he's a big deal and he was a holocaust survivor and so the 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 funeral has been on that day my character has been skiing with his girlfriend his non-Jewish girlfriend in Aspen and has been be, be, because of the how quick the funeral has happened! How quickly it happened after he died. He's missed the funeral because they couldn't get back in time. And you know, this is a, this is an instant source of of tension, of frustration, and humiliation for my character, uh, and of kind of disgust for for Daphne. And Liam and Daphne have had years of loathing each other. They've they've wound each other up at family events for many many years. They're, they're both in their twenties. They're both very smart, and they're both very passionate. And so I arrive back at the flat with my non-Jewish girlfriend, Melody, and that's where it all kicks off, really.
8: So it sounds like it's full of emotion and high, high drama, really.
5: It is full of emotion and high drama and really kind of scathing argument where they really call each other out. And what's, what's brilliant in the way that the, the writers sort of portrayed the characters is they're all, you know, the, 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 the two protagonists, Liam and Daphne. Are both very flawed. So he's he's not. I don't think doing anything sort of simplistically didactic in trying to take a side. He's really presented two very flawed characters who can be appallingly cruel to each other, which is very funny. I mean, it's very enjoyable. Typical of
8: family. And how long are you? (laughs) And how long is it on for? Where do we get tickets? Where do we go?
5: We're on for six weeks at the Theatre Royal Haymarket, a really beautiful theatre in Piccadilly. So that's on their website, I guess. And we're on from the fe- February the 8th. And then we're going on a six-week tour as well. Uh, the Finchley Arts Depot and the Rose Theatre in Kingston, Guildford and Birmingham, Manchester and Nottingham.
0: Actor Ilan Goodman talking to Kate Fulton there about Bad Jews, which runs from the 8th of February until the 19th of March, as Ilan has just said, at Theatre Royal Haymarket. For more information, you can indeed go to their website, trh.co.uk. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Now, it's around this time of year that various award ceremonies hand out various gongs to very worthy winners. Well, most of the time. But there's a new award ceremony in town, and it's being put on by Pages Partnerships for Jewish Schools. To you and me, Rabbi David Mayer has been speaking to our community reporter Diana Toman to tell us more about it. And Diana started by asking David to tell us about the organisation that is Pages.
9: Pages is the Partnerships for Jewish Schools, and in essence, it's an umbrella organisation. Uh, that encompasses all the schools across the community and uh, across the United Kingdom. In fact, there are about 118 Jewish schools across the United Kingdom. And our objective is, is to work with them and to support them. We work in a number of ways, so things like teacher training, strategic development for the community, helping schools to, to, to future plan the number of places they're going to need to provide that kind of thing. Uh, we also offer support for head teachers. we send out a fortnightly email giving them information on development in education and education and issues around the community. We also have a, a whole branch of our of our organisation that works on curriculum development. So we develop curriculum in uh, Ivrit, both at primary and secondary level. We also have a curriculum for teaching Chumash and a curriculum for teaching tefillah. And those are taught across about 40 schools across the United Kingdom.
10: I had no idea. That's amazing. How are you sponsored? I mean, this must cost a lot of money.
9: It, the main way that the, the, the sponsorship works is that trusts have come and supported the curriculum development work. We also have the support of the Jewish Leadership Council It's actually surprising uh, how little money is actually used to run the the core elements of the organisation. Obviously, some of the development of the curriculum can be quite expensive because the quality of the work that we are trying to develop and the textbooks and uh, some of the curriculum is web-based is all very, very good quality. And the, the intention there is that we want the students to be given the very best possible provision. Right. And talking about
10: students, let's talk about the awards, which are up in the news right now. We're all aware of the spotlight shone on GCSEs and A-level results as it applies to students. But this is an award for the people who are their teachers and mentors. Am I right in saying that?
9: That's absolutely right. Yes. I, I think it's very important that the community learns to say thank you. And we have teachers that put an enormous amount of time and effort and in reality, their heart and soul into educating our children and really building our future. And whilst we are quite good at celebrating the success of the schools as a whole, and as you say, we have done outstandingly well, the reality is that that success is in very great part due to the efforts of the individuals within the school that work night and day to educate our children. I would say that the response that we had was quite phenomenal. Uh, We had about 280 nominations. Good heavens, for how many categories? So there are eight categories, four at primary and four at secondary level, and those spread across Jewish studies and secular studies and, and, and leadership and ICT. And what we really wanted to see was teachers who are innovative and are really making a difference and impacting on the education of their children.
10: I see. And this is the first award of its kind?
9: This is the first time this has happened, yes.
10: Right. And how did you choose who who chose? the
9: nominations because you must have had to whittle them down yeah there were there were a number of stages in the process Uh, we we initially went through them and we had a a a small working party that 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 went through and 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 helped to try if you want and and select the first tranche of, of of applications and nominations after that we had a panel of judges um, which included uh, some quite significant people in the community, all of whom who sat down and appraised each one of the nominations. We went to the head teachers and asked them for their comments as well, so that we could, if you want, get further information about uh, the individuals, and then we selected the best candidates. And
10: who might those notable members of the panel be?
9: The the panel comprises of five individuals: Alistair Falk, who is the former head of Pages. Richard Ferrer, who is the editor of the Jewish News, and we have to give very special thanks to our partnership with the Jewish News. Karen Harris, who is managing director of INTO. And then Sue Williamson, who is the chief executive of the schools, students and teachers network. And Lord Robert Winston, who is a professor, doctor, scientist and politician. Right. So,
10: And this is just the first award is is going to be awarded when and where?
9: The, the award ceremony actually is taking place at JW3 on uh, Wednesday evening.
10: Well, it will through your elbow. I hope it goes on every year from now onwards.
0: I hope so. Is that the idea, that it's uh, yes, going think. to be an award every year?
9: <laughs> I'm not hope? sure my wife would
0: appreciate it, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's definitely in our thoughts, yes. Rabbi David Mayer from Pages talking to Diana Toman about their forthcoming brand new award ceremony to recognise the work staff at Jewish schools do.
11: You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley and me today is actor and photographer Tony Honigberg and founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carberts. The subject for this edition is based on a couple of news pieces we've been hearing about. First, we learnt an orthodox school that's been closed down by Ofsted because of insularity practices. And secondly, as we've just been hearing, pages, is to launch a new award ceremony on the coming week to acknowledge the work of staff in Jewish schools. Two totally different things. Therefore, we thought we'd talk about Jewish schools and their place in society. And the age-old question of, is better to go to a Jewish school or a mainstream school? Tony, let's start with you. Um, I'm glad you started with me. I'm actually
12: uh, against faith schools as such. I think um, non-denominational schools, non-church schools, just a, just a regular state school, I think is much better for people. I think people get on better. I went to a state school. The only thing about faith schools is that they've taken away A load of people that would have to go to state schools, which would mean they would then be even more overcrowded than they are already.
13: I'm very much supportive of faith schools because I didn't go to a faith school. I went to a a grammar school in Bournemouth. So we didn't have very much Jewish influence at all. I mean, it's not a very Jewish town, as as unlike what many people think of it. I thought it was very Jewish, Bournemouth. It's a very ageing Jewish community. So the, the young side of, of Judaism doesn't exist that much, certainly not enough to support a Jewish school. And when I moved to London, I noticed that I was missing out on something something really very special that the London North London Jewish community has and that is based on the fact that the children go to Jewish schools they have this wonderful network of friends they have as they grow and they have their own children and build their own families they still have this network of community of friendship of support that you just don't
12: get from a state school maybe maybe that's now when i grew up you see i went to a state school but the amount of jewish people that this was in Edgeware. and the amount of Jewish people that went to that state school was phenomenal. So my network of Jewish friends was large, and still
11: is large. I want to ask Julie in a yes. moment, but before I do, I must just say, as I think I've said before in this programme, I went to a Jesuit school where there were only three Jews, and yet most, I had mixed friends, but most of my friends were Jews, and I grew up in a fantastically Jewish atmosphere. And the Jesuit priests were quite pleased with it too.
12: But we had Hader in those days. Where I that's think the true. kids that go to Jewish schools don't go to Kedah, do they? Because were they got... cliquey,
11: the Jews in your school? No. Um,
12: did, did they keep to their own at all? Uh, well, I think in the main they did. I didn't because I like mixing with lots of other people. Yeah, I think that's
11: very important. Do Judy, do my, what do you think? Yeah,
14: I went to a grammar school in Hendon and over 50% of us were Jewish and we had a separate Jewish assembly in hmm. the morning and did the Shema Same every here. morning. And I think most of us probably stayed with our own friends, as we do now. Mm. uh, Many of my friends are Jewish, not all, but many. But thinking about the Jewish schools, the majority of my friends' grandchildren, you see, I'm that old, they go to Jewish schools, and the ones who want to go to an ordinary state school now can't because it seems like the cream of the children are in the Jewish school, so it's like self perpetuated. That's another
13: My phenomenon My grandchild that's happened. goes to
14: a private school, not Jewish, yes. but it's private. Her mother sent her to a state school for a week and took her out straight away. It just wasn't... No, it's it
12: certainly has changed. See, the yeah. quality yes. of
13: education in Jewish schools, according to the league tables, is very good. And it's become, if people are honest with themselves, they'll, they'll they'll sign all the forms to say they're doing all these Jewish things, they're going to school. But if they're honest with themselves, most people are sending their children to a Jewish school because of the level of education. education. Yeah. And it's like a cheap version of a private school. Mm. Well, there's yeah. that
11: to say about it, but it also, in a way, gives one a... A somewhat intolerant view of life, a totally Jewish view of life. You should have a good Jewish view of life, but you should be aware of the other religions as well. Well,
14: I think there's different uh, levels of Jewish school because certainly some of my friends' children have married out and yet their children still go to Jewish school. So they are getting the mixture but others, I'm the, sure, in, are ultra religious. I, th- I think
12: in the main they are. I think this particular school, which is in uh, Stanford Hill, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's only teaching Judaism. I, mean, I don't think it's teaching any of the other curriculum. It's not teaching maths and English and all the well, other Well, apparently parts of the they've curriculum. been. It's off the scale, it, it, isn't the it? The
13: press has reported that for 40 years it's actually been teaching in an illegal manner. Mm. It's the. It's, it's not registered. It's Talmud Torah Tashbar, I think, is the school. And they do not teach English.
11: No, they which, Hebrew and Yiddish.
13: Now, that, to me, is a concern because I would I send my children concern. to a Jewish school, but I wouldn't send them to a school that doesn't integrate them into the Western society. because no, you,
12: you need to have all the other
13: parts
11: yeah, of the you're, of you're not you're not Hasidic, are you? I mean, the, the, the reason why they send their children to that school is they want them to grow up and they live a totally separate life from everybody else.
12: But then when they go out into, into the big, wide world to work, which presumably they don't because they stay within their they own within community. They stay within their own
13: group. But that's always tended to cause problems with the outside world. When we're too insular, and this is the problem that people have got with these schools, when they're too insular, they don't know
11: how to socially interact with the outside world. They can't
13: even speak the same
11: language. So what you're really saying is that this is really part of the same sort of thing that some of the Muslim schools are going through.
13: Yeah, absolutely. And in Israel as well. I think 40% of Haredi schools in Israel do not teach English. Now, English, it's the world language. It's not a case of, oh, we're English, so you must speak our language. But it is. we all know it's yeah. the world language. It's how you get on in the world. How has Israel progressed since 1948? Because they are open to the rest of
11: the world and society as a whole. So the Jewish schools that you approve of are the Jewish schools that take in the other religions, as it were, but
14: teach you know, it, um, in English and it, teach the um, curriculum exactly, yeah. and have a percentage, maybe 10%, whatever it is, so the children don't. I mean, need I mean to I in this particular school, I
12: think. Absolutely. Exactly. In this particular school, they're teaching Torah and Torah and Torah. And they're not teaching them maths, they're not teaching them geography, history, English, and all the other. They don't parts even teach them the maths? No, not as far as I understood. And I'm sure when they do. teach when I read English about it.
14: history, they might teach them. Jewish history, but certainly not history that's relevant to here. Well,
12: Torah is Jewish history, of course. Yeah. That's
14: right, isn't and it? And yeah. if the children, if they were to get a good education, and maybe they don't all want to be students, they they want to be doctors, they want to be solicitors. They'll have to go to university. Well, a, num- a
12: number, of children, a number of children from one of these schools ha- have left right? and are now out in the the wider world because that's what they wanted. Yes. They wanted the t- more education. But as an right. orthodox girls' school, they're highly unlikely to go out to work, oh, sure. even if they wanted
13: to. It's like the oh, isn't it? Exactly. Same sort of thing. Do they, do,
12: do they teach the girls in the Haredi?
11: In I honestly don't know. I, I imagine they do, surely. Yeah, they have girls' schools. There's yes. plenty
13: of Haredi girls' I schools. I'll tell you
11: something quite interesting. I have a friend who is not Jewish, but knows a lot of Jews, and she wanted her children to go to the famous Jewish free school in, in Hampstead. Or the, the It's era. now in Kenton. It's okay. in yeah. Kenton, yes. But at the time it was in Hampstead. Yeah. And she want, desperately wanted her children, her Christian children, to go to that school, and that they wouldn't allow them in. Now, you see, that's wrong, I think. I think you should allow non-Jewish pupils at the school. Well, they do now. They do now, Oh, yes. they do? Because yeah.
13: of the recent events, it's what? A few years ago now where the mother objected to their intake and the government actually made a ruling where faith schools do have to have that option. And and
12: also I believe in some of the provinces, I think Birmingham and Liverpool, I think the non-Jewish intake of the the King David schools in both those areas are more than the Jews going there now because Uh, there's not enough Jewish children. I've read of
13: Muslims in uh, St David's school. Is No, St David's, King 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 David's David's school. It's quite different (laughs) Um, in Birmingham. Yeah. Where they interviewed some of the Muslim parents, and they said, "Well, this is how we would teach our children. Mm -hmm. So this is why we want our children
12: to go to this school." That is something to
14: celebrate. Absolutely, interesting that you
12: mentioned Muslims, as Clive did earlier on. And I wonder how many schools, Muslim schools, are actually off the education system radar as well.
13: I'd imagine most communities have.
12: Little there's an of awful issue,
14: lot yeah. like each other, aren't we, Jews yeah. and Muslims? Yeah, I mean, it's like the magnet, and you get right down to the bottom, the horseshoe, and we're, we're terribly, we're terribly close, close in many yeah. ways. Do you know
13: what one of my biggest concerns about this is, and it's always been a bit of a concern with the Haredi community, is that when you look at some of our great rabbis and our great sages, and there's got to be so many more fantastic minds... And so I can only imagine that some of them are being just wasted. Yep. All these wonderful gifts that they could be offering to the world, but because they're so insular, all their talents, their intelligence is, is being focused and funnelled in one direction. I think that's a terrible shame. It's,
11: it's a shame. But it's the way they live. I mean, you've got to accept that that's the way they and live. And they don't know any difference. They don't do course. any yeah. harm, do they?
12: No, they're not, they're not out there uh, preaching radical Judaism. They live
11: it. entirely under their own way and their own places and they, they have quite happy lives. Mm-hmm. Well maybe they're not doing any harm to the outside world
13: but
12: to the Jewish community maybe they are. Well that's why some have left I believe. Yes. They, they want
11: to expand their minds. Further. But nowadays it's a different subject but it's worth saying nowadays it's said and they say definitely say that the only Jews left in a couple of another generations will be Haredi people. Because the rest are, are moving away from Judaism, yeah.
12: mm. the middle of the road Judaism will will It's s- disappearing. Dis- is disappearing slowly. Yeah. Yes. They're either going to be more Orthodox or more Reform, I guess. Yeah.
14: They're sort of polarizing.
12: Or more progressive. We'll yeah. Although, having said that, of course, there's a second United Synagogue
11: has opened in Edgware. So, is that middle of the road coming back again? One can only hope so. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's at the same time, it's very important that it does. Because although I don't actually, I wouldn't, I didn't send my children to Jewish schools and I wouldn't have sent them. And I, I don't no, think neither. it's a terribly good thing, but nonetheless, it's important to progr- there. Yeah.
12: It's probably progression rather than, because I didn't send my children to Jewish schools either. Because but you've had
14: very good state schools yeah, perhaps private.
12: Most of my grandchildren go to. Jewish schools.
14: Because they couldn't go to the local state no, school. No, because
12: the, the local state school wouldn't give them the education... No,
14: because all the good that, that children and the pushing parents are now sending their children to... Like you, one of, to... Them,
11: one of them goes to a private school, yeah. non, uh, non-Jewish school. And, yeah. of course, it's worth remembering, that um, we talked about this a few weeks ago, it's worth remembering that the chief rabbi has said that now in schools, Jewish schools should teach the Muslim religion. Yes, yeah. 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 We should teach, yeah comparative
14: teach religion, I'm all for yeah. it. For, Every yeah, child. Absolutely.
11: Judy, when you were at
13: Hendon County. Hendon yeah. County, were there any good Jewish schools available like there are now?
14: It never occurred to us to even think of, I suppose, Hasmanian but none JFS I, but quite and religious. I suppose, no. Oh Jeff. I had I had at the time loads of Jewish friends and not one of us went to a, no. a Jewish school. Mm.
12: No one. I knew one person that went to JFS, that was it. The rest, and you the look rest went to the now, local
13: state school. And it's the, the vast majority. Schools, of course, schools, there were grammar that schools in things. those days
12: as well, so there's a different side of the education. I
13: yeah. mean, the vast majority of ch- Jewish children in North London go to Jewish schools. Now. And without
12: that, as I said at the beginning, without that, the state schools wouldn't be able to cope with the intake.
13: Yeah, yeah. Because
12: no, there'd be true. too many. And they, haven't, they can't cope with the intake now. So how would they cope with it if the
11: Jewish schools shut down or all the, the Jewish Quite children went to state schools. I'm afraid they were going to have to leave it, but my thanks to our guests, actor and photographer Tony Honigberg and founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carbridge. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Harvey Belovsky from Golders Green United
15: Synagogue. This week's Torah reading is B'shalach. It's the story of what happens after the Jews leave Egypt, how they are pursued by the Egyptians and how they cross the sea. But if you look closely into the story, you'll see that it's actually an interesting exploration of a really fundamental idea, something that probably bothers all of us, and that's free will. Whether we have true free will to act as we wish, God giving us the chance to make good decisions and sometimes get things wrong as well. When God is preparing to split the sea, perhaps one of the greatest open miracles that the Bible records, the text tells us that an east wind was made by God to blow over the sea. is one of the really interesting 13th century commentators on the Torah wonders why the east wind was needed and he says it's to preserve people's free will. There had to at least be the possibility of believing that it was a natural phenomenon not a divine intervention because human beings tend to go a bit wrong when there's no choice when they see the hand of God so openly. So even at the sea it was necessary to preserve people's free will. A bit later on in the story after they've crossed the sea There's manna, the manna from heaven. It's a familiar story. The manna comes every day. And what happens then is rather interesting because when manna falls every day, it starts to drop from the sky. It's possible we'll get used to it and come to expect it. And we're supposed to be reminded that God's intervention is there all the time. But of course, that has the potential to rob us of free will as well. We get so used to miracles, there's nothing out of the ordinary anymore. The lesson in all this is that We have to be cautious what we wish for. Most of us would like to see a clearer hand of the divine in our lives. But if we did, would it spoil our ability to make meaningful choices? I'll leave that question to you.
0: Thank you to Rabbi Harvey Bilofsky from Golders Green United Synagogue with our thought for the week. Love it how he leaves us with a question rather than answers it. Thanks very much, Rabbi Bilofsky. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Richard Verber, Ilan Goodman and Rabbi David Mayer. Also, Tony Honigberg and Judy Carbritz, who were on the schmooze. And of course, we mustn't forget to thank you at home for listening. And we've got to include our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, and you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part-recorded at the Studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.